Uh, if you would tra- take your Bibles with me and turn to Luke 23, if you would. Luke 23. I wanted to, uh, one of the privileges I have with, with uh, being able to uh, speak here on occasion, and I'm grateful I haven't driven you all off. Um, I am very grateful to be able to um, uh, hold up Pastor Phil's arms in some ways this morning. I'm glad Pastor Tim introduced me instead of Pastor Phil because I'm never quite sure how Phil's going to introduce me. <laughs> I will say he is one of my favorite sparring partners. I just love the recon tour that we have because I usually don't win those. But it gives me plenty of ammunition to use on the next guy. So, um, but he is a dear brother and a dear friend, but uh, I guess part of it is he can't speak um, this morning. So, um, so please pray for him as I'm privileged to, to take, his, take his stead today. So one of the privileges I do have is that I get to share with you some favorite uh, sermons. And, and the one I want to uh, take you to this morning is a companion in some ways to the one that I was able to, to bring to you last uh, August. Uh, last time I was here, we looked at the Lord's words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is part of a series of seven words that Jesus Christ uttered on the cross, his last words. And I want to backtrack this morning and take a look at the second of those seven And that would be the words that Jesus spoke to the criminal that was crucified along with him. Uh, This is uh, unlike all of the other uh, seven last words of Christ. Most of them have about half a verse or so setting the context, just setting the stage for them. This particular word of Jesus has about four verses setting the context. So we have to spend a lot more time Uh, focusing on the preliminaries before we can really understand what it was that Jesus was saying uh, when he responded to this this criminal. So I want to pick up at verse 39 of Luke 23, and then I want to pause and ask for the Lord's help as we delve into this passage. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there kept on hurling abuse at him, saying, You are the Christ, aren't you? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he kept on saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Amen. To you I say, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the preeminent event in history that this passage describes. And I do ask for your help that you would strengthen me, that you would uh, hide me behind your word, and particularly that, Holy Spirit, as you are the primary teacher, that you would be uh, the one who would take whatever I have to say and quicken it, 
Protect me from saying anything that would be untrue to you or untrue to your word. In short, Lord, help me to be a blessing to your people here this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Even when the Lord Jesus Christ was enduring his great agony on the cross, he never forgot the reason why he came. In fact, Luke articulates it this way earlier in his gospel when he says that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. If we'd had the opportunity, if I'd had the opportunity to actually preach for you the whole series, one of the things that we would have been noticing is that before we got to number four, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every single one of the first three words were focused on others. The first one, where Jesus is praying for those who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second one, where Jesus expresses his compassion and forgiveness for a repentant criminal who says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The third one, where Jesus expresses concern for his mother in John chapter 19 when he says, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. It's only when he gets to that fourth one, which is the center point, where his attention finally turns to himself when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I will say this, that his concerns were so focused, were preeminently focused on others. And there's a necessary detail that I need to mention to you regarding the first of those words, because it sets the stage for what we see in the second one that we're looking at this morning. And if you skip back with me very quickly to verse 34 of Luke 23, you'll notice that in the New American Standard, which I have with, you, with me this morning, that it says, at the verse part of it, that Jesus was saying. In Greek, there are, there are several different ways of describing an event that happened in the past. There's one particular tense called the imperfect tense that's used to describe an event that happened over and over and over again or repeatedly in the past. That's the tense that's used here. Now, that's an important detail. I don't normally like to bring up a lot of uh, grammatical details when I preach, uh, but this one has a very significant impact on the interpretation of this passage. Because sometimes we get the idea that Jesus just, you know, in the midst of his agony, just shot out this prayer toward heaven, uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But the indication in the original text is that, is that Jesus repeatedly gave this prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If I can reconstruct a little bit of the events, it's something like this. As Jesus Christ is dragging himself and his cross up the hill, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he falls under the weight of that cross and Simon of Cyrene has to take it from him, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When he arrives at the top of the hill and they throw him down on the ground and nail him to the crossbeam, he's praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As they lift him up, and that cross piece falls into place, he's praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As the people around him, including the two thieves on either side of him, are mocking him, he's praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Over and over and over again, you have Jesus uttering this prayer. I don't know how many times it pierced heaven 
when Jesus was hanging there, but it was repeatedly offered. And this passage gives us the first fruits of the answer to that prayer. A prayer that's been answered literally millions of times since Jesus first prayed it. But here we have the first answer. This man who is crucified on either side, on, on, on the one side of Jesus. We don't know who he is. We don't know his name. We don't know whether he had any previous exposure to Jesus or to Jesus' ministry. The Bible tells us really nothing about him. Church tradition has tried to step in and fill in some of the gaps, and probably the most common explanation of who these two people were who were crucified on either side of Jesus were that they were companions of Barabbas who was set free. Um, Barabbas who was an insurrectionist according to the other Gospels, which is ironic given the fact that they were charging Jesus with insurrection, that they demanded that one who was actually guilty of insurrection be released to them. One of many ironies connected with the crucifixion of Jesus. But we don't, the only thing that we can really deduce from this guy is the word that Luke uses to describe him. He's described as a criminal. Uh, we sometimes, and I, out of force of ha habit, will probably revert back to this, sometimes refer to the thief on the cross. But don't get the wrong impression. This is not a guy who's sneaking into Jewish synagogues and filching shekels out of the offering plate while he's leaving his, double, his camel double-parked on Main Street of Jerusalem. He's not a small-time type of a guy. This uh, may be the best way to describe this word uh, that Luke uses in terms that would make sense to us today is terrorist. This guy is the worst kind of criminal. That's all we know about him. He's crucified on the side of Jesus along with his companion, who would also be described in the same terms. But I want to suggest to you that with these two men, every single one of us is represented in one of these two men. The question is not whether we are a sinner, or even putting the strong term on it, a criminal. We have committed high treason against the God of the universe. So the question is not whether we're a criminal. The question is which one of these two best represents us. And it's amazing that in the words that Jesus utters here, amen to you, I say today you will be with me in paradise, those words have so much theology packed into them that it makes you wonder if the church, if the church had paid closer attention to what Jesus said just in this verse, it would have saved us from some of the most persistent heresies the church has been plagued with for 2,000 years. For example, sacramentalism was refuted because this man was instantly saved without recourse to mass or baptism or any of the other things that people say are necessary for people to do in order to be saved. Purgatory was refuted because this man was instantly transported into glory upon his death. He didn't have to wait or go somewhere else to have any of his sins paid off. The doctrine of universalism was repudiated because it was only one of the two criminals that was saved in this occasion. And of course the doctrine of soul sleep was repudiated because for the same reason you have this man absent from the body, present with the Lord, to pa borrow Paul's words, Jesus says today 
will be with me in paradise. And we could even argue the health and wealth gospel is repudiated because Jesus didn't go and spend three days in hell. Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Lots of things have been undermined by these words. But I want to take a step back this morning and focus our attention basically around two divisions. Number one, I want us to look first at the requests of the sinners, verses 39 to 42, and then look at the response of the Savior in verse 43. If you notice, first of all, that I deliberately put the word in the plural in the first part. It's not the request of the sinner, it's the requests, plural, of the sinners, plural. Because one of the things that's very easy for us to miss, especially if we're familiar with the story, it's very easy for us to forget that there were not one request, there was not one request given to Jesus, but two requests. And they are requests that are very opposite. They are also requests that proceed to some degree from a position of faith on the part of the people exercising them. I want to take a quick look at the first one, the first criminal. Verse 39, he says, You are the Messiah. Okay, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I lost my place there for a second. There are a couple things that I want to highlight here. First of all, in Greek as in English, there is a way to ask a question in a way that indicates what answer you're expecting. For example, I could say it like this. Whether the answer is, you know, the one I get is what I'm expecting is a different question. But if I were to put my question like this, you weren't late today, were you? What answer am I expecting? No. Okay, now you may have been late, but I'm expecting a no answer. But if I phrase the question, you were late today, weren't you? What answer am I expecting? Yes. In Greek, you have the same way of wording the question. This man words his question, you're the Messiah, aren't you? He is presupposing the claim that Jesus had made repeatedly that he was indeed the Messiah. In fact, what's interesting is that when you compare the language that he uses here with the language that Peter used in Matthew 16 with his great confession, you are the Christ, the language is virtually identical. The only difference is this man states it as a question, Peter states it as a, as a statement. That's really the only difference between the two statements. But at that point, the similarities end. Because there are some people that exercise a non-saving faith. James describes this in chapter 2. And in essence, this is the kind of faith that accepts a certain orthodoxy about Jesus, but only wants Jesus on their own terms. What this man was essentially asking Jesus to do was he wanted to be saved from the consequences of his sin. He was praying for self-preservation. Save yourself and save us because he wanted to be saved from the consequences of sin. There are some people who aren't sorry at all about their sin. 
but they're sorry they got caught. Their repentance basically exhibits itself in, boy, if I do, when I do this next time, I'm going to be a lot smarter in, in making sure that I can cover my tracks or avoid the consequences. So they're, they're either sorry they got caught or they're sorry that because now there, there's, a, there's a law of what you sow you're going to reap, there's a law of consequences that follow sin that they're sorry now they have to deal with it. And of course in our society and in our culture we have people that, that want to run headlong into practicing sin and want everybody else to pay for the consequences of it. The birth control mandate being one example of that. So there's a lot of examples of this even in our own culture. But the man in the second case exercised a very, very different kind of faith. If the first one wanted to be um, uh, prayed for self-preservation and wanted to be released from the consequences of sin, this one asked Jesus for self-sacrifice because he wanted to be released from the curse of sin. I want to suggest to you this morning that that is one of the marks of true repentance is when we see sin not primarily in terms of what it does to us, but what it does in terms of our relationship with God. The Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, his ears not stop that he cannot hear, Isaiah said, but your sins have separated between you and God. Paul would say, quoting Galatians, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Right after saying Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Sin brings with it a curse. Sin brings with it separation from God. And this man, and probably it was by repeatedly watching Jesus pray that prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, over and over and over again, something finally clicked with this man. He recognized that it was, he recognized Jesus' sinlessness, and he recognized by contrast his own sinfulness. He wanted to be preserved from the curse of sin. But part of that meant that Jesus had to stay on the cross because there was no way that Jesus could save himself and save us. There was no way the first per, these, uh, criminal's request could be answered in the, in the affirmative. Because if Jesus saved himself, he could not save us. But if he is going to save us, he could not save himself. He had to stay on the cross. And that's going to be very important as we proceed through this. I would comment that the man, the, the one who, the, the repentant criminal, exercised something along with faith that is a genuine component of saving faith, and that is repentance. Acts 20 puts it this way, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself earlier in Luke's gospel had demonstrated that uh, had, 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 had indicated that except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. How do I know this man repented? Well, partly because the other gospels indicate that it wasn't just the criminal on the other side of Jesus that was hurling abuse at, at Jesus. Both of them were in Mark and Matthew's account. Both of them began 
by mocking Jesus. In fact, in the intervening verses between 34 and 39 of Luke 24, you have all these different groups of people who mocked Jesus. You had the priests, you had the soldiers, you had the two criminals, but one of them repented. That's the mark of true, genuine, saving faith is their repentance. But I also want us to take a closer look at the faith exercised by this individual, the second criminal. Because the first one accepted a certain truthfulness about Jesus, that he was the Messiah. But like I say, he was using Jesus as a means to his own end. He wasn't accepting Jesus on his his terms. But this one indicated three things about Jesus that are very, very important for us to call attention to. They're all, they all begin with S, so hopefully it should be easy to remember. But number one, this man, this second repentant criminal, recognized that Jesus was sinless. We see that at the end of verse 41. When he, uh, beginning of verse 41, he's rebuking his companion and says, we are suffering justly, we're receiving the, what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong he's confessing the sinlessness of christ now let's not too quickly move past that statement this is not a mere doctrinal affirmation because we have to put this in the context of what had been going on leading up to this point you were you will remember that before we get to this point jesus christ himself had undergone six separate trials, three of them religious, three of them uh, civil or criminal trials. The three religious ones were marked by the fact that the people conducting them, starting with the high priest on down, had to break virtually every law in the book to get Jesus trumped up, convicted on trumped up charges. It was illegal to hold the trial at night. It was illegal to hold the trial without the entire Sanhedrin present. You had part of it with only the ones they could get there in last minute assembled. You could not vote to convict and sentence on the same day. Uh, You had to begin with arguments for in defense of, which were completely absent in this particular trial, and then followed with uh, with, uh, arguments for uh, condemnation. You... um, You couldn't force a person to testify against themselves, and the list goes on. Easily a dozen separate biblical and extra-biblical laws were broken, if not even more, in the trials that Jesus Christ endured. And when they came to their climax in the religious ones, the high priest, because he couldn't even find false false witnesses who could agree, another slight problem there, but even, even when the false witnesses fell through, finally the high priest puts Jesus under oath, which is illegal, because he's forcing Jesus to incriminate himself at this point. You tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God, and at that point, for the first time, Jesus speaks. And he says, you said it, and quotes Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 to back it up. And then the high priest throws his, uh, t- tears his garments and said He's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? And then it transitions to Pilate. Interestingly, the Jews don't bring up the charge that Jesus claimed to be God to Pilate because Pilate doesn't give a rip, which is also another illegality. You could not be crucified for a, a charge different 
than the charge that you were originally convicted on. Jesus has supposedly been convicted because he claimed to be the Son of God. So now he appears before Pilate, and they bring up charges of insurrection against Jesus, because that one's going to carry more weight with Pilate. But Pilate, either somewhere between three and six times, depending on how you harmonize the gospel accounts, Pilate himself declares, I find no fault in him. At one point, Pilate sends him to Herod the not-so-great, who was the son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, I think. You've you got to split your Herods right when you interpret the New Testament. Um, but he sends him to Herod. Herod sends Jesus back with the same verdict. I find no fault in him. He's, he's, he's innocent. You know, on top, at, the, at the same time, Pilate's wife sends him an email or something that says, have nothing to do with this just man. He's innocent. In the meantime, Judas has returned to the temple, taken the 30 coins and thrown it on the floor of the temple and said, I have sinned because I have betrayed innocent blood. And of course, you have this criminal who's affirming the sinlessness of Jesus and even the centurion, the battle-hardened centurion who's witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, in Matthew's account, he says, truly this was the Son of God. But Luke has it. He was a righteous man. Well, which did he say? How about both? Jesus was a righteous man precisely because he was the Son of God. So when you have this man, and, and by the way, all, we, all of those testimonies that I just mentioned to you about the sinlessness of Christ all came from his enemies. I haven't even included the ones that Peter said and that John said and that Jesus himself said, people who knew him. These are people that had a vested interest against Jesus and each of them concluded that he was absolutely sinless, which means they concluded that his claim to be the Son of God was actual true. To put it another way, when this man claimed the sinlessness of Christ, he is implicitly, if not explicitly, claiming that he is God, precisely whom he said he was. And by the way, God himself will make the same claim. God doesn't intervene in this case, but three days later, Jesus Christ comes out of the tomb. Why is that? Well, among dozens of other reasons we could give for why that is, Romans opens with a statement that Jesus Christ was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, but was declared to be, not became, declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of the dead was God's way of reversing the wicked human verdict. It was God's way of saying he was exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And this man saw it. He has done nothing wrong. He is sinless. So he confessed the sinlessness of Christ. Number two, he confessed that Jesus is Savior. Find this at the beginning of verse 42. We can even highlight that he calls Jesus by his name, Jesus. I think it's significant that, this, uh, that it's not often in the New Testament that you find the name of Jesus appearing alone. It's usually the Lord Jesus or Christ Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ or some combination of titles, but here is one of the few cases where it appears alone. I'm wondering if Luke is trying to call our mind 
to what Matthew had said in Matthew 121 when the angel appeared to Joseph and said, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. See, that's the one name of the Son of God that's specifically connected with his saving work. But it's not just in the fact that, that this man uses the name Jesus, because Jesus was a common enough name in the first century that it could merely have been an appellation. But it's what he asked Jesus to do. He says, Jesus what? Next two words. Remember me. Remember me. Again, here is where our English language does not help us very much because when we use the word remember, we usually have the idea of calling to mind something we've forgotten or are in danger of forgetting. So, But that's not what the Bible means when it uses the term, especially when it uses it in connection with the Godhead. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Genesis 8 in the Old Testament, you have God in heaven. There's Noah on earth. He's been in the ark now for about a year. And Genesis 8 opens with a statement that the Lord remembered Noah. I don't think that means that God's up in heaven saying, oh man, I forgot all about that guy down there. He's been sitting in that ark for a year. I've been too busy doing other things to remember this guy. No, the verse follows on by saying that the Lord sent a wind and parted the waters from the earth so that Noah could leave the ark. 1 Samuel 2, it says that the Lord remembered Hannah and opened her womb so that she was able to bear a son. The Lord remembered Samson and gave him the ability to finally overcome his enemies. In other words, when the Bible uses the word remember, it has the idea of to act decisively on behalf of someone. It isn't just calling something to mind. It is acting on in the favor of someone based on calling them to mind. We can even put this negatively. When Hebrews 10, quoting Jeremiah 31, says their sins and their iniquities, I will what? Remember no more. It isn't that God all of a sudden develops a case of divine amnesia. It's that God essentially is saying, I am not going to act decisively about your sins because I already did. I put them on Jesus. So as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. So when this man is praying, Jesus, remember me. He is praying for something more than Jesus is just going to call him to mind. Keep in mind, both of them are right then being crucified. They're getting ready for the Passover the next day, which, by the way, was another reason why the trial of Jesus was illegal. You couldn't be holding tri trials like that when, when festivals were going on. But they knew that because the Passover is going to be the next day, their lifespan was going to be significantly abbreviated. They were going to be put to death before the day was out. And, G and this man is calling Jesus to remember him? How in the world does that make any sense if we're not pointing to something beyond the situation in which they were in right then? How could Jesus remember him when he, of course, when you come into your kingdom, which is the next thing we'll look at? This implies and even requires resurrection. 
The only way that Jesus could act decisively on behalf of this man and save him is if there's a resurrection. So the deity of Christ and the resurrection of Christ already implicit in these words. And then number three, not only is Christ sinless, not only is he savior, but number three, he's sovereign. Lord, remember me when you what? Come into your kingdom. Again, don't forget, these guys, are be, they're both being crucified at this point. Hey, when you kill a king, isn't that usually the end of a kingdom? But now we're killing the king, and this man sees the killing of the king as necessary to him coming into his kingdom. Now, if resurrection isn't already implicit, this requires it. This man somehow, with the eyes of faith, saw that the circumstance that Jesus was right then in was necessary for him to get into his kingdom. So Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. So he confesses the sinlessness, the saviorhood, and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Now there's one other important detail I have to highlight for you that's vital for interpreting what's going on here. If you notice, I talked earlier I mentioned the imperfect verbs in verse 34. You have the same dynamic going on here in verses 39 and 42 with these requests that these men made of Jesus. They made both of them over and over and over and over again, and Jesus delays responding. So you can so picture this. This is what's happening. Jesus is hanging there on the cross. From the one side, he has, save yourself and us. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Save yourself, remember me. Save yourself, remember me. Save yourself, remember me. Save yourself, remember me. Over and over and over and over again. The very fact that Jesus delays suggests that this was yet another example of the severe temptation that he faced throughout his life and ministry to try to get to the kingdom apart from the cross. Even to the point where the very night before when he prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. It's almost like Jesus now has these very opposite requests And which of them would have been easier for him to answer? The first one. Because he's already experienced the physical agony of the cross and he knows the separation from his father, the judicial separation from his father in fellowship that's coming up. It would be very easy for him to get off the cross and the desire for him to get off the cross would be compelling. And he's delaying his answer. Now, we know how it turns out, but put yourself in the passion of the moment. You can see, as it were, all of those Old Testament saints that are in heaven on credit, as it were. You can see Daniel and Isaiah and and Abraham and Esther and Ruth and and, uh, all the other Old Testament believers that you could name kind of peering over the parapets of heaven, wondering how is Jesus going to respond Is he going to respond to the first request, which means we're all damned? Or is he going to respond to the second request, which secures his promise regarding our entry into heaven? And in light of that, we have Jesus' response. The first thing I want you to notice about his response is the finality of it. He gives a once-for-all answer. There's a switch in tenses. This is Jesus' final answer. 
But secondly, I want you to know the certainty of it. The first word is truly. It's translated truly in the New American Standard. I wish they had just translated it amen, because that's the word in Greek. And again, this is where our English language doesn't help us very much, because we have come to the point where we say amen as a tack-on at the end of our prayer to tell the next person it's their turn to pray. The word amen has lost so much of its meaning to us, but in the biblical context, amen is the strongest possible way to affirm something, especially when Jesus says it. It is an emphatic, definite way of saying, this will be so. And he says it to the thief, or to the criminal, who, to the second one. He basically is saying amen to you, not to the first one. As I mentioned last time I was here, one of the best books I've ever read on the last words of Christ is this book by Russell Bradley Jones called Gold from Golgotha. And he describes the significance of this amen in this way. He says, it is as if Jesus had said to the penitent thief, I will not fail you. I have determined to go through with it. You can depend on me. I'll march into the heart of hell, though it be infinite in its distance from the heart of God. I will endure in a few compressed agonizing hours the eternal torments justly do the wickedness of all men of all the ages. I will bring paradise to you before the day is done. I take sides with your prayer, not with that of the one who would avoid the physical pain. Amen to you, not to him. Bradley continues, at this hope revives. Heaven rejoices. The heroes of faith fall on their knees in praise. The penitent malefactor feels the surge of a new life possessing his whole being. The final victory is won. There is nothing left for Satan to do but to vent his spleen on the one who refuses to do other than to fight it out in the very precincts of death itself. This meant the choice of the deepest death of hell's torments by Jesus. This meant that he would have a trophy to lay at the feet of his father. This meant Adam's return to paradise. This meant that the Savior would not fail in love's service. This meant that no man representing Caesar, Sanhedrin, or the devil could pull Christ's bleeding body from the cross until he could cry in triumph, it is finished. When Jesus made this statement, amen, he's saying, I'm going to stay on the cross. And you and I here today, if we trusted in Jesus Christ 2,000 years later, can say amen because he said amen. Amen. He stayed on the cross for us. The finality of it, the certainty of it, the timing of it. Today, you will be with me in paradise, the nature of it. We get to be with Jesus totally transforms death for us. We're absent from the body, present with the Lord. I want to close. Do I have time for the short version? Okay. I want to close with um, playing for you a song, and we're going to do the, it would be blue number 18, I think, in the blue disc. Don Francisco, who's an excellent songwriter, put the testimony of the thief on the cross into words. And I can't think of a better way to end our time together by playing that. We'll have the words up here, and then I'll close after we're we're done. So if you could play that. I awoke to hear the jailer turn the key and push the door. 
Get out here, he shouted, but I stayed there on the floor. Frozen in the terror, it rose and filled my brain, for I knew what they intended. I could not face the pain. Then soldiers came into the cell and they dragged me to the yard. They threw me down before a cross, brought the whip down hard. Carry it, they shouted as I struggled to my feet. I put my shoulder under it, dragged it to the street. I stumbled through a wall of screams as he drove me through the gate. It seemed that thousands lined the streets, their voices filled with hate. Like a wolf pack in the night that moves in for the kill. They closed the gap and followed us as we started up the hill. And it seemed I barely reached the top when they grabbed me from behind. They threw the cross down under me and tied the ropes to bind. The arms close to the beams as they nail up feet and hands. And they raised the cross up in the air. So I looked to read the sign. It was nailed there up above his head so the world could see the news that the man who seemed so helpless there was the king of all the Jews. Well, the crowd that stood around his cross made jokes about his name. And they shouted, laughed, and spat on him. So I joined in the game. And I said, hey, if you're the king, why don't you get us down? Here. The taunt just sounded hollow And it echoed in my ears Cause he looked at me with eyes that seemed to reach into my heart They shone a light on all my lies and tore my life apart There was more that lay behind his gaze than simply blood and clay just crucified us, drank there on the ground. And although he spoke them quietly, somehow his words came through. He said, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they do. Then as if they heard him speaking, the crowd began to roar. With the frenzy by the priests who urged them on to more. Now the plainer I can see The guilt of the accusers Not the one there next to me And the man upon the other cross Began to curse and swear And his voice was filled with venom As he hurled it through the air And all the horror that was in him And had laid his life to waste Came out in every syllable Us there. It couldn't be denied because his righteousness and innocence were shining bright and strong. I just couldn't keep. 
my silence and that person still went on i cried out don't you fear the wrath of god even at the end you'll curse us both into the pit is that what you intend we're only getting what we're due we've sinned our whole lives long but don't you talk to him that way he's done nothing Shouts and curses did not stop even when the sunlight ceased. But somehow in the midst of it, my soul had been released. And though the agony continued, it was still too small a price to be allowed to hear those words and to die beside the Christ. Well, the shouts and curses did not stop even when the sunlight ceased, but somehow in the midst of it, my soul had been released. Though the agony continued, it was still too small a price to be allowed to hear those words and to die beside the Christ. I can't hear that song without tearing up. There's a longer version of it, which has a transition to heaven. I would encourage you to download it. Uh, you can get on his website at rockymountainministries.org. But that really summarizes the essence of this passage. There was a faithful pastor who was once warning his people about the dangers of delaying trusting in Christ. And in the middle of his sermon, someone in the audience cried out, what about the thief on the cross? The pastor responded, which one? J.C. Ryle, over a hundred years ago, said, One thief was saved so that none might despair, but only one thief was saved so that none might presume. So which one are you? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you for the testimony of this man. And thank you for your response that not only saved him, but saves us as well. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, we say thank you, Mike, for coming. And I would just say that uh, it's an important question to ask yourself. Which thief, which criminal are you? Because there's salvation.
you trust in him.